Well, good morning. My name is Lee, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, already, just what an exciting morning. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it deserves that again. It deserves that again. And any time that we can come together with brothers and sisters in Christ and celebrate new people being added to God's kingdom is just a, is a wonderful thing. Um, I am very excited uh, that we brought Ka- Pastor Kyle onto our team. Yeah, it's all... I think he's only been here about four, four months now. So if you can average nine baptisms for four months, that's, uh, that'll be amazing. That, that will be amazing. Uh, but no, we are grateful for that and the work that he puts in and the way he's reached out to our students. Um, and that's possible. What you saw today is possible because Kyle is willing to have those conversations with our students to make sure that they understand not just coming to church makes you a Christian, but what does faith mean? We need to understand why we believe the things that we believe. And Kyle does an amazing job with those students, and we're grateful for that. Uh, we have been in the Exodus series. Today we're going to take a short break for that. Um, but it still kind of connects to it. When Pastor Matt started explaining about the, the book of Exodus and what's happening, he was talking about the covenant that God made with the Israelites. And so in the beginning of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. So then this really begins the Israelite slavery. So one of the things I want to talk about today is who is this Joseph? Because if everything has changed now because there's the new Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, we need to figure out who was Joseph and why did that matter? Now, when I say Joseph, we're not talking about Jesus' earthly father. We're talking about Joseph. He was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, come from his lineage, and he was one of the children of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and that's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from. And Joseph was 11th in line. So we're going to talk about his life today. And so I want to set that up. In our country, we have this expectation that if we work hard and we do the right thing, that we'll be rewarded. We all, we all think that. And we like that idea, right? Because that kind of puts, puts it on us, right? It's up to me. If I work hard, if I do the right thing, I'm going to be rewarded. But yet our experience would tell us differently for some of us. We see people who work hard and who are great at their job, but they get passed over for promotions all the time. They never get a raise in their salary, right? And we all know people who are highly incompetent and lazy workers, yet they continue to rise up the corporate ladder and get promoted and get higher raises. And that doesn't make sense to us, and we don't like that, right? We don't like that. We, we like this idea, our expectation, if I, if I work out, if I'm healthy, if I'm active, then I'm going to be healthy for life. Yet people who do that still get sick, still get cancer, right? Even young kids get that. So our expectation doesn't match our reality. There are those of us, if you grew up in the church, or if, you, if you've raised kids in the church, your expectations, if I bring my kids to church and I talk to them about faith, that when they get older, they're going to choose the same thing. That's the expectation we have. But everybody, all of us, at least know somebody, or maybe you're that person in this room where that's not your present reality. Your kid was in church. You expected that they would follow Christ as they got older, and now they've gone away from that. Our expectations don't often match our reality. And when that happens, when that happens, we can become bitter and we can also even begin to doubt that God is actively working in our lives. It's not that we stop believing in God, but we believe like God is, 
this being that's out there, but he doesn't really concern himself with my life. Because if he saw the pain that I was going through, the rough times that I was in, the bad circumstances that I was in, then surely he would intervene on my behalf. This is especially true when bad things happen. When bad things happen, we have this idea, first we want to we say, why me? Why me? No matter what happens, anything that takes us off course of where we want to be, our first response is, why me? Why is this happening? Our second is to blame God. God, why would you do this? I, I do the right thing. I do the right thing. I'm not asking God to be a multimillionaire. Right? For a lot of us, we would just be happy if God could come down and promise us and say, hey, if you follow me, I'll make life easy and smooth for you. We would take that. We would take that any day of the week. That's not a promise. That's not a promise. We do all these things, and we want to have an easy life. We want to have a good life. And so we think that if God's not giving us that, that God doesn't care. He's either not involved, or he just doesn't care, and he's got other things to do. And that's where we get. And we can become miserable, and we can become jaded about that, even to the point where it makes it hard for us to celebrate when other people do well. Right? If things aren't going well in my life, it's harder for me to celebrate in somebody else's life. And so the reason that that's the case for us is because we are selfish, right? Like, I love you guys, but I don't love you as much as I love me. That's, that's all of us, right? We're all in that attitude. It's not that we can never be happy for someone else, but it's sure a lot easier if things are going well for us. And if we're in the midst of some deep, dark, long struggle, it's really hard for us to be happy for anyone or to celebrate things because we become so inwardly focused. We become so worried about the bad things that are right in front of us that we can't possibly see that something else could be going on. But what I want to ask you today is what if God is intentionally allowing those things because he's going to work them out for good? Because God sees the bigger picture. Do you trust that God can see five years down the road? We can't. Right? We can't. So if we're in the midst of a bad situation, a bad circumstance, we have a tendency to want to give up because we don't know where it's headed. We just know in this moment it's hard and it's not fun and we want to get out of it. And we want to get out of it. But what if God is using that to work out good in our lives? We don't like that because that's not how we would do it. Right? If we were God, if we were in control, we'd be like, hey, you do the right thing, we'll make things easy for you. But that's not reality. For any, I, don't know, I don't know anybody that that's through their whole life that that has been their reality. They did the right thing and they were rewarded. Everything went great every single time. Anybody know? Is anybody that person in here? Yeah. None of us are that person because that doesn't happen to any of us. But what if we could trust that God knows what he's doing? How would that change how we view those circumstances? How would it change how we respond in those circumstances? How people see us live out our faith in those circumstances if we believed that God was going to work things out the way that he wants them to work out. Before I was a pastor, I was a teacher. I taught uh, elementary school reading. And so most of the schools I taught at were high poverty, low income schools. And most of my students couldn't read at a first grade level, much less a fifth grade level. So I made it my goal every year. I, just, I need to find something that these kids like that they'll interest them and I can get them reading and that'll help things out. And one of the series that I really love to to kind of pitch to my kids was a series of unfortunate events. Anybody, anybody know this? Here we got a handful of people. So in this, this, now this series is about, I think, 13 or 14 books long, and it involves the Baudelaire children, and they are orphaned at a young age, and bad things keep happening. But within each book, 
Something turns and something good begins to happen. And you start to tell yourself, finally, something good's going to happen for these kids. And then at the end of the story, the author yanks it out, and the kids are in an even worse situation than they were before. And this goes on for like 13 books, but I couldn't put them down. I don't, it's like watching a car wreck, right? Like, you know you want something better to happen, but this is, this is where we are. The reason I bring that up is because this is exactly what Joseph's life was like. It's exactly what Joseph's life was like. Joseph didn't do anything wrong, but every time something was starting to go well, something came in and brought it crashing down. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50. We're going to cover a lot of chapters in Genesis, so if you want to keep up with the story, have your notes handy. We're going to be going back and forth. The story of Joseph covers 14 chapters. Don't worry, I'm not going to do all that today. We'll be out here at least by 2 o'clock in time for the picnic. <laughs> so you'll be good. Plenty of time to go pick up your food. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 50. That's where we're going to start. Now, I have two kids. They love to read, love to read. That was the thing, being a former teacher, I made sure to get them involved in reading at an early age. And so we go to the library every week, and whatever the maximum number of books you can check out from the public library, that's what my kids check out from the public library. And my son, Brendan, he's eight years old. Every time he gets a new book, first thing he does is he flips to the back, he reads how everything ends. If he likes that, he goes back and starts over. Because he wants to know that it's going to end up okay before he starts reading the book. We're going to do that today with the life of Joseph. We're going to start with the end, and then we're going to show you how we got to this point. So we're in Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. If you're using that one, we're on page 38. We're in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, so what we see here, even if you, if you have zero context, if you've never opened a Bible, never been to church, you can tell just from reading this that Joseph is in a position of authority. His brothers come before him admitting that they've done wrong things to him and trying to tell him, hey, before your father died, before our father died, he said you need to take it easy on us. Right? So it's clear they've done something wrong. It's clear Joseph's in a position of authority. And it's also clear that Joseph still has an emotional attachment to his brothers because it tells us that he wept. And he even says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So the, these brothers have clearly done something wrong to Joseph. So let's go back to that. In chapter 37 in Genesis, we're told that Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob. So these 12 sons born to Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel, and Joseph is the 11th. Now, Jacob really loves Joseph because he has Joseph when he's much older, older than what was normal for that time. 
And so he gets this, he has this beautiful coat design for Joseph. He puts it on him and he shows him favoritism so much so that the 10 older brothers are aware of it. Like they see it and even says the older brothers began to hate him. They began to hate Joseph because of the amount of favoritism that their father showed. All the brothers were shepherds. So they're out tending their flock. And Jacob, the father, he tells Joseph, he says, I want you to go check on your brothers. I want you to go see how they're doing. So they're in this region called Dothan. And as they see Joseph coming, we're in chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 19. I'll give you a second to get there. As they're coming, remember, one of the things that I forgot to mention, other than the robe, Joseph also tells his older brothers, hey, there's going to come a time when you guys are going to bow down to me. I had this dream and you're gonna bow down to me. Now, as an older brother, I find that highly offensive, right? But those of you guys who are the youngest in your family, you're like, yeah, it's exactly how it should be. Exactly how it should be. So he's told them this, I had this dream, you guys are gonna bow down to me one day. So they don't like that. So there's the dream, then there's the favoritism, they do not like Joseph. So let's look in, verse, in chapter 37, verse 19, as Joseph is coming out to his brothers who are with their sheep, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. These are his brothers, his older brothers. Their father's favoritism and Joseph's arrogance has driven him to this point where it's not just, hey, let's kind of shun him, like let's murder him. Their brother, this is what they're thinking. And so one of the brothers, Reuben, he says, you know what, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in this cistern. A cistern was basically a well, it's what held all the water. So he said, let's throw him in there. And Reuben's plan was to come back later and to rescue Joseph. So you're thinking, okay, his brothers are messing with him, but surely Reuben's going to come back and take care of things for Joseph. By the time Reuben comes back, the other brothers have already said, you know what, if we kill Joseph, we don't get any money from that. So let's sell him as a slave. Slave traders are coming along, and they say, you know what? There's some slave traders. Let's take Joseph's robe, this beautiful robe that his father had given him. Let's take that, and then let's sell him. They sold their brother for eight ounces of silver. That's what they sold him for. Now, obviously, you can't go back to dad and be like, hey, we know the other brother was with us, but he just disappeared. We don't know what happened. So what they did, they killed a goat, and they dipped Joseph's coat in the blood, and then they take it back to their father and they say, look at this. Is this your son's robe? Not, is this my brother's robe? Is this your son's robe? And Jacob says, yes, my son's been killed by a wild animal. And he goes into mourning. Everybody tries to comfort him. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to be comforted until I join my son in the grave. That's what Jacob says. So these brothers have done all of this to Jacob. So now they sell him. They sell him into slavery. So look at chapter 39. Genesis, we're still in Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. The Egyptians and the Israelites were not best friends, okay? There was not like, hey, there's this common mutual respect. They did not like each other, and that's what we get into in Exodus. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So again, let's recap this. At this point, Joseph is 17 years old. 17 years old. 
And he sold into slavery by his brothers. First, they were going to kill him. Then, okay, he gets a break from that, but he sold into slavery. And not just that, but now he is bought by Pharaoh's captain of the guard. Pharaoh being the head of all of Egypt. His captain of the guard, Potiphar, buys him. So not only is he a slave, he's also in a slave of a place that does not like his people. But let's look at verse 2 because this just doesn't make sense to me. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. His brothers tried to kill him, then they sold him, now he's a slave. But it says the Lord was with him. So what does that say to us? What that says is that our circumstances do not determine God's faithfulness. There's not a worse situation Joseph could be in at this point. But yet the Bible tells us the Lord was with him. Now this really messes up our expectation, especially in America, that if we do the right thing, we should be rewarded. Right? The reality is, God can be with you, and you can still be going through the worst time of your life. Those things are not exclusive. God's not some distant thing. God's happening. God's active in our lives right now. But he was with Joseph, and so much that Joseph does becomes successful. Do you guys know somebody who, like, everything they touch turns to gold? Everything they touch works out? Are any of you in here that person? If so, we need to hang out more. I need some, I need some more good stuff. But we all know somebody like that, right? That everything they do, it works out for them. Everything they do, it works out. And so that doesn't happen here with Joseph. What happens is he's made the number two in Potiphar's household. Potiphar says, everything that you're doing, the Lord is blessing, so you're in charge of everything that I have going on. The only person more powerful than you over the captain of the guard and everything is me. So again, it looks like things are starting to pick up a little bit for Joseph. Sure, he's in slavery, he's owned by Egyptians, but he still, things seem to be picking up a little bit. So you would think to yourself, things are going to get better for Joseph, but you would be wrong. Potiphar, like Joseph, the problem for Joseph was that Potiphar's wife also liked Joseph. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so the Bible even says that Joseph was strong and handsome. Like it, it, it mentions that so that we understand kind of what's happening here. So Potiphar's wife tries to bring him in and take advantage of him, like day after day after day. And Joseph says, I can't, I can't do this. God has put me in this position. God has blessed me. You are the wife of my master. This will be an abomination to God, so I cannot do this. So one day he goes in, and all of her servants are gone. And so she grabs Joseph by his garment and tries to take advantage of him. And so Joseph, realizing what's happening, he does that. You know like when somebody grabs your jacket and you like shake out? You know, you do that kind of thing where you look really graceful and poetic. That's what Joseph did. He goes as fast as he can. The problem is she still has his garment. So guess what happens when her husband comes home? She says, this Hebrew that you brought into our house has tried to embarrass me and our family. He came in here, he tried to do things to me. Here's his coat as proof. And in verse 19, chapter 39, verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him. This is when Potiphar has been told by his wife. She said, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger, as any good husband would. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So 
Again, as things seem like they're starting to go well for Joseph, his circumstances are starting to change. They get worse again. He's now thrown into prison. He's now thrown into prison. But let's, let's keep reading the next verse there. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. That doesn't make sense to us. He was sold into slavery. The Bible says the Lord was with him. He's now in jail. And the Bible says the Lord was with him. But I thought our circumstances were only good if we had God with us. So what this is telling us is that, listen, circumstances can go from bad to worse. If God is with you, he does not leave. If our faith and our trust is in him, he is with us through good circumstances and through bad circumstances. Our circumstances do not dictate God's faithfulness. So now we're going to be in chapter 40. Joseph's in prison. It says, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness. And he got in good with the prison warden. So the prison warden puts him kind of in charge of the prisoners there. So everything that Joseph is doing, the Lord is with him. And things are going as well as they possibly could in that situation. The one thing, we don't know if it happened, but the Bible doesn't record, is it never talks about Joseph complained and moaned about everything that happened to him. That's our favorite thing to do, right? We're in a rough situation. We love to complain. We love to moan about that. Even better, we love for somebody else to tell us their sob story because we've got one that can beat theirs. Like, oh, yeah, things are rough for you. Just wait till you, know, you hear what I'm going through. That's what we do, though. Always, it's so hard for us. Life is so tough for us. And things are tough. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that at all. I'm not denying that at all. But to understand, to understand what God is doing in our lives. So Joseph's in prison. And then as this comes along, two of the king's top officials, his cupbearer, the cupbearer would have been the person who, anytime somebody brought a drink to the king, the cupbearer would taste it first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So that was his job. Basically, you know, if the cupbearer dies, the king doesn't drink the, the liquid, whatever it was that's brought to him. The other person that had offended the king was the baker. They're both sent to prison, the cupbearer and the baker. There must have been some bad pastries or something going on if you're going to send your baker to, to prison. And so while they are there, each of them has a dream. And Joseph's able to interpret the dream. The cupbearer has his dream. And so here's what Joseph says in chapter 40, verse 12. This is what Joseph tells the cupbearer. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. And this is key. Listen to this. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So a couple of things we, want, we need to notice about that. So he's telling the cupbearer, hey, this is what's going to happen when it does remember me. He also, Joseph doesn't have this attitude like everything's happy-go-lucky. It's like, oh, you know, we'll just make the best of the situation. He has not stopped thinking that he was brought here forcibly. He's brought here forcibly. And even in this dungeon, he has done nothing wrong. He's aware he's done nothing wrong. This isn't fun for him. Right? He's not saying, listen, no matter what happens, let's just be happy and let's just rejoice in it no matter what. But he trusted God. The baker then tells Joseph his dream. Joseph doesn't give the same response to the baker. He tells the baker, your dream means that your head's going to be cut off and you're going to be impaled on a stake. 
So it's different. I would have rather been the cupbearer in that situation. Three days go by, only three days. The king calls the two officials back up, and it happens exactly as Joseph said it was going to happen. The baker, his head's cut off, he's impaled. The cupbearer is restored. So now you're starting to think, okay, finally, something good is going to happen to Joseph, but you'd be wrong again. You'd be wrong again. Let's look in chapter 40, verse 23. This is just a, it's, this is like that part in the book or the movie where, you know, it's, it just comes even more heartbreaking because you realize it's almost hopeless. Chapter 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. This was only three days. This was only three days. And he forgets him completely. He's so happy with being restored to where he was with the king that he forgets completely about what's going on. But it gets worse. Chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed. Not only did he forget him, he was still in this prison for two more years. Two more years. When things go rough for us for two weeks, we think the world is coming to an end. Imagine being wrongly put in prison and then being there for two years. Just when things are supposed to go well, you're there for two years. So two years after this time, Pharaoh has a dream. And then he can't find anyone to interpret the dream. So he tells his people, I need somebody. And the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. And he says, oh, uh, forgive me, Pharaoh. There's this guy in prison that interpreted my dream correctly. Maybe you should get him up here. So he does that. And Joseph says, listen, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of good food, seven years of good crops. Everything is going to go well. Then there's going to be seven years of famine. The famine's going to be so horrific that no one's even going to remember the seven good years. So he said, what you need to do is find someone who's in charge of these things that can keep these stores of food for the good seven years so that when the famine comes, we will have food and we will survive. And so Pharaoh makes Joseph that guy. Pharaoh makes Joseph that guy. The Lord is with Joseph. Everything Joseph touches goes well. So much so that Pharaoh says, listen, you are now the number two person in all of Egypt. No one raises a foot or a hand without your say-so. So Joseph, so much craziness has happened in Joseph's life, but he comes to this point again where he is given authority and he is given power. Only Pharaoh himself was considered greater than Joseph in all of Egypt. Now in chapter 41, just look in verses 50 through 52. This is when Joseph's still in charge. The, the good crops are still going. It says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He doesn't paint Egypt as some happy place where everything's going well. He refers to this as the land of my suffering. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is pretend everything's okay. That's literally the worst thing we can do. And the reason being, in order to become a Christian in the first place, you have to understand, I have to understand that we are not okay. That we have a deep need to be rescued by Jesus. Without that, there is no becoming a Christian if you don't see that you have a need for that. We need to quit pretending that everything is okay just because we're Christians, just because we go to church. Okay? We need to show people our brokenness. We need people to see when things are going wrong because in those moments, what we are called to do is to go to God. 
Not to be in despair, not to think the world's coming to an end, but those moments should send us to God. So then the famine comes, and guess who needs food? Joseph's brothers, the same ones that were going to kill him, the same ones that sold him into slavery. This is, now, this is now 13 years later. At this point, Joseph's 30 years old, so this is 13 years later. So you can imagine that Joseph looks different going from a 17-year-old to a 30-year-old. So his brothers don't recognize him. They're standing before Joseph asking for food, and they don't recognize him. And this is where, if we can figure out how this part works in our lives, it'll, it'll change everything. In chapter 45, Genesis 45, 1 through 8. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence, and rightfully so. Then Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And this is where, if we can learn to respond like this, it will change our lives. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse eight, this is key. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. It's not you, the brothers who sold me into slavery. You're not the reason I'm here. God sent me here. How many of us can say that in the worst times of our lives? Do we, do we have this attitude, God has brought me here for a purpose because God sees the bigger picture. But for us, we're so focused on what's happening right in front of us, there can't possibly be a good reason that God would allow these things to happen. But see, the thing is, we're not God. We have no idea. We have no idea because you and I can't see what's happening five years down the line. We don't know that. We're incapable of seeing that. We're incapable of seeing what's going to happen next week. We can plan for things, but we don't know that. God sees all of that. Right? If we, let's, let's pretend we have a, we have a, a string going from that, this podium to, to this one over here. And this string that's going across is our timeline of history. Right? Like when Adam and Eve, when the earth was created, to where things are going to be. And so we're probably somewhere, you could say we're probably somewhere on, on this point on the line. And so if I asked you, on this line of history, where is God? Some, some of you say the beginning, some may say the end, some of you would say the whole line. If this line is history, then God is this room that we're in. God does not exist within time. God created time, meaning that God sees where we are today, right? where we are today in 2019, and God also knows September 8, 2025. God sees that just as clearly. Is there something that God is working out in your life now that you hate? And honestly, just it makes your life feel like crap. That's the reality. But that God knows five years down the line, what happens here is gonna make such a big difference there. Do you trust that God is working out for your good? Do you trust that that's happening? Because that's hard for us to do. Joseph did trust that God knew that. 
How else can you offer forgiveness to these guys? How can you say not, not only, I don't want you to be mad at yourself. That's what he's telling them. Don't be mad at yourself. God ordained this. God ordained this. God set this in motion. If we can see that, if we can see that God has a bigger plan in mind, that's the only way that forgiveness can be offered in that situation. That's the only way it can be offered because he knew that God had a bigger plan. And so there's three things I want us to, to focus on today. Number one, bad things happen to everybody. Bad things happen to everybody. If you love Jesus, if you despise Jesus, bad things will happen. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I've had conversations with the people who have said, You know what? I, I used to go to church. I, I used to love Jesus, but then these bad things happen, and now, so I've given up. Bad things will still happen for them, right? With or without God, bad things happen. Anybody lived a free life and nothing bad has ever happened in your life? If you raise your hand, you're lying, but you can try it anyway. We can talk afterwards. Those things happen, every single one of us. Either we've had something troublesome happen in the past or we're having something in the future, or there's some of you that are sitting here right now, and you're just in the midst of it, and life is just terrible. Life is just absolutely terrible. So how do we find God in this? The second thing we need to understand, God doesn't call bad things good, but he does work through them for good. He works through them for good. Romans 8.28, it's one of the verses that Darren read during our call to worship today. And we know that in all things, notice that, it says all things, not just when things are going well. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If your faith is placed completely in Jesus Christ, then even the worst parts of your life, God is active in that and he is working it out for good. That is a promise. Now, where we get messed up is that our definition of good is different than God's definition of good. God's not working it out so you can have an easy, carefree life. God's working it out so that he can be glorified. So whatever he's got to do in your life to make that happen, that is the best thing for you. God allows the things in our lives that we would allow if we could see what he could see. But we can't. So then it comes down to the issue of trust. Do we trust that God knows what he's doing? And this doesn't mean, again, just like Joseph, this doesn't mean we say, oh, well, you know what? I, things are tough now, but everything's going to be fine. I don't really need to worry about it. No. Again, don't pretend everything's okay if it's not. Because if we do that, then we're going to refuse to go, I'm not going to bother God with my prayers. I'm not going to bother God with my heartache because everything's going to be okay. A lot of times those moments come in our life so that it would drive us to our knees in prayer to God. To throw up our hands and be like, God, I, I got nothing. I've got nothing. I can't do anything about this. This has not happened by my choosing, but this is a part of my life. And I've got nothing, God. I need you. That's the cry of our hearts has to be, God, I need you every single day. That's what he's trying to drive us to. Because, and this is the third point, everything God uses in our lives is meant to point to him. And his goodness, his faithfulness, and his greatness. Everything is meant to point to him. You and I are not the heroes of our story. We're never intended to be. God is. When we're going through these rough times, look to God. Look to what he's doing and trust what he is doing because he can see the bigger picture. And this idea of Joseph, 
He didn't do anything wrong, yet these things continued to happen. He continued to suffer, and through that, his people were saved, right? If this doesn't happen, if God doesn't set things up and allow it to go exactly this way, then when the famine comes, all the Israelites are going to die, and God's covenant has been broken. So God, in order to fulfill the covenant he made, set things up this way. What is God setting up in your life? You could be going through a hard time. That doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Even more so, you need to understand that God is with you. And you need to know that. You need to know that God is with you. Now, I want you to pay attention here. Notice I did not say you need to feel that God is with you. Our feelings betray us every single day. If we lived our lives based solely upon our feelings, we would change. We would get married and divorced every day. We would give up our kids and then take them back every day. Right? We'd quit our job and then get a new one every single day if we are guided by our feelings. I'm not saying to ignore our feelings. That's not what I'm saying at all. But they are a terrible guide. We need to be guided by truth. We need to be led by truth. And the Bible promises us that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work out for good. All things. Even the part of your life that's just terrible right now. How is God using that? How is God using that? For Joseph to be able to say, to look at his brothers and say, you didn't send me here, God did. In the tough parts in our lives, can we stand there and say, you know what, God has sent me here. I'm, I'm, I'm in the thick of it, everything's terrible, but I know that God is here with me. How would that change the way you live your life? When things go wrong, how would that change the way other people see the way you live your life? Think about the impact that would have on you, on your family, where you work. Everything that you did would be completely changed if people could see that God is with you through that because everybody goes through hard times. We talked about that. Bad things happen to everyone. But what makes it different about your hard time if God is with you? There's some of you today that right now you're going through such a hard time, you're really having trouble just wrapping your mind around what I'm saying today. And, and I get that. I'm not saying that this is an easy concept to comprehend. That doesn't make it less true. God being with us, God is still with us. Right? I, I, I may not like the fact that I don't have hair and I'm, I'm getting up to my mid-40s. That doesn't make it less true. Right? Those things are still true. We may not feel like God is with us. We may be in hard times and wonder where is God, but if he has promised that he is with us, that is truth, and he is with us. He is with us. We need to see God's sovereignty in all these things. Our feelings don't change his promises. Our feelings don't change how active he is. And please understand, our circumstances do not change whether or not God is active in our lives. He is active. He can see the bigger picture. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, even as we think about the life of Joseph and how everything he did, uh, he, he didn't do anything wrong, but yet all these things happened, Lord, and it just foreshadows to the work of your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who never did anything wrong, but was killed so that we might be saved. Not just so that a small group of people be saved, God, but that so salvation would be offered to the world. God, all, all, of, all of the scripture points to Jesus. And as a church, that's what we want to teach too. God, even in the story about Joseph and what he's going through, it, it points to what your son has done for us. 
to live a sin-free life, but to have his life taken so that we can be saved. God, and you offer that to us. That's amazing. Lord, I pray for those that are in tough circumstances right now, God. Um, Lord, where life just seems hard. And, and not because of things that we've done, Lord, but just things just come at us that we're not aware of and can't control. Lord, control is an illusion, and the sooner we understand that, the better off we'll be. God, bad things are going to happen to everybody. Lord, we want you to be with us, Lord. We, we know if we have given our lives to you, if we have trusted in you, that you are with us, even through the hard times. Lord, I pray for everyone that's going through those times right now, Lord, that hearing this today, God, will drive them to prayer, Lord, to de full dependence upon you. Now, because we need you. We cannot, we cannot be with you if we do not admit that we need you. So, Lord, I pray for those who have not gotten to that point today, Lord. God, I pray that they will just admit that they need you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, I thank you that you provided us a way to be saved. And I thank you that you are with us, even in the hard times. God, we love you so much. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.